I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll begin this morning by reading the first two verses for us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. I, Howard Marshall, commenting on 1 Peter, said this, The case could be made that if one were to be shipwrecked on a desert island and allowed to have only one of the New Testament letters as a companion, then 1 Peter would be the ideal choice. So rich is its teaching, so warm its spirit, and so comforting its message in a hostile environment. As we embark on this study of 1 Peter, I. Howard Marshall is right. This is a rich book. It's filled with deep theology that is comforting to our spirit and encouraging to our souls. And at the same time, it's an exhortation for us to live for Christ in the midst of a hostile environment. In fact, Peter, the Apostle Peter, gives us the purpose statement for why he wrote this letter over in chapter 5 and verse 12 where he says this. He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter is exhorting the believers who are reading this letter, and really any believer who is suffering for their faith. And he's exhorting them to stand firm in the faith in the midst of persecution. Now why would Peter say this? Well, we all know, every one of us knows and we understand that it can be a temptation for any believer who is suffering to go back to their old ways in order to save their life and not have to endure hardships. Right? It's a temptation for all of us. None of us would say that we enjoy trials and hardships. In fact, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say that we like the easy life. And for things to always be going well and always be going according to my plans, right? And so it's a real temptation for believers who are suffering to stop standing for Christ and just take the easy way out. Peter knew this temptation well. Didn't he? Denying Jesus three times? To a little slave girl? Who came and said, you were with him, weren't you? Temptation! Take the easy way out! Peter was even tempted to go back to his business of fishing. After Christ had already called him to the ministry, chosen him, selected him to be an apostle, to take the gospel to the nations, Peter was tempted to go back to his old business of fishing. And so that temptation is there. The temptation is there, and Peter knows this. And so he writes to these suffering believers to encourage them to continue on in the faith and to never waver. Never. In fact, this whole letter, as we will see, is an appeal for these believers to stand firm in the gospel of God's grace as those who have been born again to a living hope. As Peter says down there in verse 3, 
But Peter knows that the only way that this exhortation is going to be meaningful and life-changing is if it is rooted in Christian doctrine. It must be rooted and grounded in Christian doctrine. In fact, one commentator says, Peter well knew that Christian exhortation to be vital and transforming must be grounded in Christian doctrine. And instead of easing into the letter and kind of warming up to these believers in some kind of warm, fuzzy introduction, Peter just goes right into rich doctrinal content, right from the get-go. He just jumps right in. To deep theology, to doctrinal truths. And he goes right to one of the most debated and controversial doctrines in the evangelical church today. What is that? The doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. Now, what is the doctrine of election? Kurt Daniel, in his book, Basic Christian Doctrines, says this, quote, Out of this special grace, God chose some sinners to be rescued from their sins. This is the doctrine of election. It happened in eternity past. God sovereignly chose some sinners to be saved from their sins and not to be punished for them. They were chosen to receive grace, not wrath. They were chosen individually, by name, and their names were written in the book of life. He goes on and says, God chose us. We did not choose Him. He chose us solely by consulting with His own counsel, not by foreseeing our choice. End quote. That's the doctrine of election. A.W. Pink calls the doctrine of sovereign election one of the most hated doctrines in the Bible. He's right. And yet, he also says that the doctrine of election is the most foundational doctrine in the Bible. It's foundational to the Christian faith. And Peter knew this truth as well. He knew it was foundational, and so he begins his letter by addressing this great doctrine. And that's what we're going to be talking about here this morning as we look at verses 1 and 2. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of election and God's elect. In fact, if you and I were honest with ourselves, we would all agree that the doctrine of election is something that is difficult for us to understand, right? It's difficult. Because everything in our natural flesh wants to fight against this. Especially today as we live in a democratic society that wants freedom and doesn't want anyone to tell us what to do. If we were honest with ourselves, we will confess that we don't really like to submit to authority. Right? We don't like it when someone else is in charge of us. We don't want others to make decisions for us. But in understanding the doctrine of election, we must confess that we did not choose God. But He chose us. There's something inside of us that really doesn't like that. It wants to fight it. It wants to battle it. In fact, a lot of people think that the doctrine of election isn't fair. It's one of the arguments. People will say, well, that's not fair. Why do they think that? I'll tell you why. Because they have decided that they're going to set the standard and decide what is fair and what is not. When somebody makes a claim like that, to say that God isn't fair is to say, I am going to play God. 
And I'm going to set the standard for what is fair and what is not. As R.C. Sproul says, somehow it is widely assumed that God owes all people either the gift of salvation or at least a chance of salvation. He's right. People think that it's not fair that God chooses some and not others. But even in that question of fairness of God... What those people are saying is that if the doctrine of election is true, then that isn't fair, and therefore they must conclude that there is some unrighteousness in God. You see that? That must be their logical conclusion. It's not fair, and therefore if it's not fair, then there must be some unrighteousness in God, because I know what is right. And therefore, if God isn't fair, then He's not right. If God is unfair, then God is unjust and His ways are not right. But what does Paul tell us in Romans 9.14? What shall we say then? Paul asks this very question. There is no injustice with God, is there? What's his answer? May it never be. No, no, not ever. That's what Paul is saying. Is God fair? Yes, He is. Is God just? Yes, He is. Is God right? Yes, He is. All the time. All the time. And so if God chooses to save some and not others then you can't say that's not fair. You don't set the standard. You and I don't set it. God does. And whatever God does is always just and fair and right. God can choose whoever He wants because He is the sovereign one who is in charge of everything including our salvation. But you see, there's a lot of people that are out there that will say, yes, God is sovereign over all things, except for my salvation. I chose Him. One commentator says, in many people's minds, fairness is everyone receiving exactly what he or she deserves. If God were completely fair, by this definition, we would all spend eternity in hell paying for our sin, which is exactly what we deserve, right? We don't want to receive exactly what we deserve. What do we want? We want grace. Give me what I don't deserve. We want eternal life, even though none of us deserves it. And if God doesn't choose some to be saved, we can't stand up to God and tell God what is fair and what is not fair. Because everything that God does is fair and right and just. Everything. Even in choosing those in whom He will save. It's fair. Because He's the standard. It's just. Because everything that our God does is just. And it's right because our God is righteous. In fact, Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge. In Psalm 97 too, it says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Which means everything that God does is right and just. Everything. Even his election of some to be saved. But because of our fallen nature, our pride gets in the way and our flesh fights against this, right? 
And when we begin to think that God chose some and not others, it can easily get to us and our flesh begins to fight against it because there's a part of us that wants to play a part in our salvation. I want to play a part in this. That's our flesh. That says, I want to somehow, in some way, be a part of this salvation. But it's all of grace, as Ephesians 2.8 says, right? By grace you have been saved. Not by grace and your choice. But by grace and by grace alone. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Which means that salvation is all of God and none of you. Because if it's most of God and some of you, then what can you do? You can boast. And you'll be able to stand before God one day and say, God, aren't you glad that I chose you? But no one will be able to say that. No one will. No one will be able to boast. It's all of God and it's all of His grace. And so, we must not fight against this doctrine, but we must embrace this doctrine. We must embrace it. We must learn to love this doctrine and believe it. And let me just give you a few reasons for why we should believe this doctrine. Why should you and I believe the doctrine of election? Number one, Reason number one, we should believe it because it's taught all throughout the Scriptures. It's taught all throughout the Scriptures. All the way back in Genesis, we see in chapter 12 that it was God who chose Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose him. Abraham was not seeking after God. That's why that whole seeker-sensitive movement is wrong No one seeks after God. No, not one, Romans chapter 3 tells us. Abraham was not seeking after God. It was God who chose and called Abraham to go to the land that he would would show him. It was God who said that he would make Abraham a great nation. Abraham did nothing to earn this and nothing to deserve this. Nothing. In fact, Nehemiah 9.7 says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You, Lord God, are the one who chose Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God. Paul tells us about Jacob and Esau in Romans 9.11 where he says this, For though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. Did you hear that? They did nothing. Nothing good, nothing bad. So that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, that is to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we go, how could God do that? Because He's God, and we're not. Because He's the sovereign over His creation, and God can do whatever it is that God decides to do. Before the twins were even born, He chose Jacob. Paul is clear that that God chose Jacob, not because of anything that he had done. In fact, Jacob wasn't even born yet. 
We also see God's choosing of the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7, it says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because of Israel's size that they were chosen, meaning it wasn't because of anything that Israel had done that they were God's chosen people. God chose them out of his own sovereign free will, and he made a covenant with them. God did that. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.4, it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God chose Jeremiah before he was even formed in the womb. And before Jeremiah was born, God had consecrated him and appointed him to be a prophet. God chose Jeremiah. And so the doctrine of election runs all throughout the Old Testament. We also see the doctrine of election in the New Testament. Let me read some of these verses for you. You can just jot these down. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Is it possible, though? Not possible. Why? Because they're the elect. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but... I chose you. I chose you. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, just as he chose us in him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. For what? For salvation. For salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And if you think this was something that only Paul wrote about, Peter writes about it here in 1 Peter 1 and even in 2 Peter 1.10 where Peter says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. He chose you. Even the Apostle John in 2 John verse 1, he says this, to uh, uh, the elder, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. He's writing to this lady who is chosen. Chosen of God. We could go on and on. There's many more verses that talk about God's sovereign choice and the doctrine of election. But the doctrine of election is taught all throughout the scriptures and there is no getting around it. We can't get around this. Back Charles Spurgeon said, you must first deny the authenticity and full inspiration of the Holy Scripture before you can legitimately and truly deny election. pretty strong statement but he's right you have to deny the full inspiration of the holy spirit or of the holy scripture 
In order to deny the doctrine of election, you have to deny a lot of Scripture. All the Scriptures that we just read, and more. R.C. Sproul tells of a note that he would always keep on his desk that said this, You are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. He wrote that to himself and always kept it on his desk. That's our job. That's our duty. We must believe what the Bible says is true, not what we want the Bible to say is true. What does it say? We must believe what the Bible says is true. And you can't even get through the first book of the Bible without seeing the doctrine of election taught, right? It's all over the Bible. And because God's Word is true, and we see it taught all throughout His Word, we must believe it. We must believe it. Number two, second reason we should believe this doctrine is because it magnifies the gospel. This doctrine magnifies the gospel. Now think about this for a minute. Did God send His Son to die on a cross and just hope that people would believe in Him? As if God sent His one and only Son and His Son goes to die on a cross to be raised again on the third day, ascend to heaven, and then God is in heaven today just saying, oh, I hope someone will believe in Him. I mean, look at what he did on the cross for these people. I hope someone will believe. As if God is in heaven begging people to believe in Jesus in their own free will. What kind of sovereign God is that? And what if God sent his son and no one ever did believe in him? Well, that's not possible. <laughs> How do we know? Take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is writing here to the church at Thessalonica. And notice in chapter 2 and verse 13 what Paul says. I read it earlier, but I want us to see this with our own eyes. Notice what he says there. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for what? Salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Is God up in heaven just hoping that people will choose Him and be saved? No, he's not. This verse is clear that God chose you from when? From the beginning. God chose you from the beginning for salvation. From the very beginning, God has chosen a people to be saved. And all those who hear the gospel and are chosen by God will be saved. In fact, that's what Paul says in the very next verse. Notice what he says there in verse 14. It was for this reason he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He chose you and he called you. How? Through what? The gospel. Through the gospel message. And so all those in whom God has chosen will hear the gospel and they will be saved. 
Now, they may not hear it the moment that you and I preach it to them and be saved. But if they're chosen by God, then God will, by the power of the gospel message, save them. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we can be sure that all those who hear the gospel and are chosen of God will be saved. We can be sure of the saving power of the gospel because all those who are elect will hear it and be saved. And that magnifies the gospel, right? It magnifies the gospel. That means the gospel will go forth and do exactly what God has planned for it to do. It's the means by which God's elect are saved. It was the means by which you and I were saved. We believed the gospel because we were chosen by God to believe. And He changed our hearts and He gave our dead hearts life. So that we could believe in him. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, right? You were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Can a spiritually dead person choose God? No. Why? Because they are dead. They're dead. So God had to do something. God had to make our hearts alive. God had to do that work so that we would repent of our sin and believe in Him, right? He changed our hearts and He gave our dead hearts life so that we would believe in Him. And the same is true for everyone who hears the gospel and who is elect. They will be saved too. In fact, did you know that it was the doctrine of election? The chosen ones of God that drove Paul's evangelistic ministry? It was the doctrine of election that drove and motivated Paul in his evangelistic ministry. How do we know? Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to Timothy right before he's about to die. And in chapter 2 and verse 10, notice what he says there. Paul says this, For this reason I endure all things. Now, where is Paul writing from? From prison. Notice he says this, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul knew that there were people who were out there who had been chosen by God who needed to hear the gospel. And so he's willing to endure hardships, imprisonment, Whatever it took to get the gospel to them. Because he knew that those who are chosen needed to hear it. So that they, being chosen of God, would hear the message of the gospel and repent of their sin and trust in Christ. It was the doctrine of election that drove Paul's ministry. I do all of this for who? For the sake of the world? No. For the sake of who? The chosen. God's elect. For them. Because I know they're out there and somebody's got to preach the gospel to them. Sign me up. I'll go preach the gospel to them. Is the world going to like it? Nope. What are they going to do? Persecute me? But I'll just continue to preach the gospel. 
Maybe somebody who's there in prison needs to hear the gospel. Then I go to prison. And what do I do? Preach the gospel. Maybe one of the prison guards is chosen of God. You know what he needs to hear? The gospel. Wherever you put me, God, I'll be there and I'll preach the gospel and I'll tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and all those who are chosen of you, who you have elected before the foundation of the world, they will hear it and they will believe it. And that drove Paul's ministry. You see, there are a lot of people who will say that the doctrine of election actually weakens evangelism. They'll make comments like, well, if God has chosen them, he'll find a way to get the gospel to them, so why evangelize? But that wasn't Paul's mindset. Why evangelize? Because they need to hear the gospel in order to be saved, right? That wasn't Paul's mindset. Paul didn't see the doctrine of election as weakening evangelism. You know how God desires to get his elect the gospel message? Through gospel preachers like you and I. Through people like us who go and preach the gospel to them. One commentator says, The next person you share the gospel with may be one of God's elect. And you may be part of the way God has ordained to bring them to faith. Think about that when you share the gospel with someone. Next. You may be sharing the gospel with one of God's elect. And you know what God's going to do? Save them. And then you can give God all praise and all glory for using you as a vessel as a messenger, to share the gospel with them so that they would be saved. When we understand that there are people out there who are God's elect, that should motivate us to go out and to preach the gospel. Because when we come across one, we'll share the gospel with them and they will be saved. The doctrine of election It motivated Paul in his ministry and it magnifies the gospel and it should do that in our lives as well. You then might ask, well, who are the elect? Answer, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. None of us know who the elect are. but I do know that all those who repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ are the elect of God. If you're here this morning and you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, guess what? You are the elect. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here we are. God's elect. And there are people that are outside of these walls here, though, who are unbelievers. But who are God's elect? Who are they? I don't know. What's our job to do? Give them the gospel. Let's go preach the gospel. That's our duty. That's our job. God knows who his elect are. He knows whom he has chosen. Our job is just to go and give them the gospel message so that the elect will hear it and be saved. Wasn't that how Paul saw his ministry? It's exactly how Paul saw his ministry. His ministry was to bring the gospel to God's chosen people. You see, the gospel is not a possibility. The gospel is a certainty. Why do I say that? Because all those whom God has chosen will certainly be saved. They will be saved. J.I. Packer says, election, so far from undermining evangelism, undergirds it. For it provides the only hope of its succeeding in its aim. What's he saying there? The doctrine of election tells us it will succeed in its aim. 
It will do exactly what God has sent it to do. For the unbelieving, haters of God, those that are not chosen of God, will they receive it? They won't. In fact, it'll do what? Harden their hearts even more. But for those who are elect of God and chosen of Him, what will it do? It will awaken their hearts. And they'll be saved. See, election provides the hope that the gospel will succeed. And the thought of that just magnifies the gospel. It will go forth and save people. We can be assured of that. How do we know that? Because God has His chosen ones out there who will hear it and be saved. We just have to go tell them. That's it. Number three, third reason why we should believe the doctrine of election is because it is our hope and security. It is our hope and security. Paul promised in Romans 8.30 that those whom God predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Past tense, as if it's already happened. We've already been glorified, even though we haven't yet been glorified. Glorification is a reality. It's the future of all of those whom God has predestined. All those whom God has chosen. That's our future. Now, when did God choose us? When was it that God chose us? Well, remember I told you back in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that God chose us from the beginning. Remember we read that. From the beginning. But what does that mean? What is the beginning well, look over at 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8. Notice what Paul says there. Paul helps to clarify what the beginning is, and he says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us, notice this, in Christ Jesus from all what? Eternity. It was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. When did God choose us? From all eternity. That is, in eternity past. God chose us in eternity past. You and I were in the mind of God in eternity past. You realize that, church? In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before He spoke it all into existence, you and I were in the mind of God as His elect, as His chosen one, as His child. You and I were. You see, our hope is not in some good works that we have done to try and earn our salvation. Our hope is not in us trying to muster up enough choice even to choose Him. That's not our hope. Our hope is in God who has chosen us before we even did anything good or bad. Before we were even able to make a choice. Our hope is in the God who has chosen us to be His in eternity past. And listen, because God chose you, you cannot lose your salvation. Isn't that glorious news? You'll sin today, 
tomorrow, sometime this week? We do. But you won't lose your salvation. Because we can't. His choice of us is permanent. It's fixed. And you can't lose it. It's impossible. It was already fixed in eternity past. Before you were even born, He chose you then, and God will not go back on His choice. He won't. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And therefore, all those whom God has chosen will never perish. Never in fact, listen to what Luke says in Acts 13, 48. He says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. That is, hearing the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You hear what Luke's saying there? They were appointed to eternal life. And all of those who were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Even the Gentiles, the Gentiles who heard the gospel, they were saved and they rejoiced because they were appointed to eternal life. They were chosen by God. And therefore, they would not lose that life, that eternal life that they had been, been given. Why? Because they were appointed for it, right? They were appointed to receive it. They had been chosen to obtain eternal life. And that gives us hope and security. And no one can take our salvation from us. No one. Why? Because we were chosen by God, appointed to receive it. And the, the readers of Peter's letter, they needed to be reminded of this. They need this reminder. They were suffering under persecution they needed to be reminded and comforted by the fact that they belonged to Christ because they were chosen by Him. They needed that glimpse of hope that when everything looks terrible around them, they belong to Christ and are secure in Him. And so Paul reminds them of the great doctrine of election. Of their election. You see, the doctrine of election is not only biblical, but it's also very practical, right? It's very practical for us. You and I will go through hardships, suffering, church, persecution is here. There are Christians who are being persecuted today in America, standing up for the truth. We must be reminded we've been chosen by Him. We cannot lose our salvation. We belong to Him. That should comfort us in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of those hardships. Such a comforting doctrine. It's very practical. And Peter knows this, and so he begins writing this letter to those believers who are chosen by God. Now, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And as we begin here in verse 1, notice that Peter says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That simply means that he is one who has been sent out by Christ. He walked with Christ for three years, and then, as we saw last week from John 21, Jesus commissioned Peter to go and to feed his sheep. And as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was an authorized representative of Christ with a special assignment, an apostle. He was what we call a capital A apostle because he was directly sent out by the risen Christ. That's simply what apostle means, a sent out one. You and I are sent out into the world, right, to go and preach the gospel, but not directly by the risen Christ, but Peter was directly face to face 
from the risen Christ. And so he's an official apostle there in the early church during the apostolic period. And he was specifically chosen by Christ and sent by Christ on a mission to go and preach the gospel. And so these believers who are spread all over in these Roman provinces in Asia Minor, they need to listen to what the Apostle Peter said in his letter as an apostle sent out by Christ. He was a man with apostolic authority. Authority given to him by Christ. And it would do well for them to pay attention and to listen to what Peter has to say. And it would do well for us as well, right church? To pay attention to what he has to say. Now, as we work our way through these first two verses, let me just say right now that we're not going to get through these two verses this morning. I have six points for you from these two verses because there is so much that is packed in here. This is going to turn into a two-parter, maybe even a three or a four. Who knows? We'll see what the Lord has in store for us. But as we work our way through these two verses, we're going to see not only the deeper truths about God's elect people, but we're also going to see that God has chosen us for a purpose. There's a purpose in God's election of us. And so as we continue in verse, verse 1 here, we're going to see first of all, point number one, the earthly status of God's elect. The earthly status of God's elect. Notice again what Peter says in verse 1. He says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, notice Peter is writing to chosen believers who are scattered throughout five regions here, or five provinces here in Asia Minor. He names them for us. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These believers, they're scattered all over these provinces in what was known as Asia Minor at the time, what is modern-day Turkey. And because of Nero's persecution of Christians during this time in the Roman Empire and blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome, many believers had to flee for their lives. They were scattered. And it's possible that some even landed in these provinces here that he's writing to. But because of Nero's antagonism and hatred of Christians, persecution of Christians began all throughout the Roman Empire which these five provinces are a part of. But notice that there were churches that had been planted there in these provinces. In fact, a few of them are familiar to us. A few of these provinces are familiar to us. We see Galatia there, which Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian churches. It's a province, it's a region, not one specific church, but a bunch of churches in a region. That's the the epistle of Galatians. We even see there Asia, which was the western part of Asia Minor, where Paul would have done a lot of evangelistic ministry. In fact, this here in Asia, in Asia Minor, is where Ephesus was located, which we have a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. So some of these are familiar to us. We know that there were churches that were planted in these provinces. But you also have Pontus and Cappadocia and Bithynia. Three regions. We don't have letters that are written to them specifically. We do have Peter here, this epistle that's being written to them. But we don't have anything from Paul written to them. But at the time that Peter is writing this letter to these regions, these provinces, we conclude from this that these provinces had been evangelized and that churches had been planted there. As one commentator says, the existence of Christian churches in these provinces bears witness to much unrecorded missionary work during the first 30 years of the Christian church. Isn't that amazing? You and I, we read through the epistles of Paul and all the the places that Paul went to, and we see his great missionary work. We see throughout Acts 
all of the missionary work that's going on there. But then we come to this letter that Peter is writing to these provinces that we've really never heard of before. But we conclude and we understand there was missionary work that was being done there. It just wasn't recorded for us. You see, the gospel was being spread not just by the Apostle Paul, the great apostle and the Apostle Peter, but also by other lay people in the church. Believers in the church. They went out and they preached the gospel and churches were planted. They continued to do evangelistic work and the gospel went forth and God's elect were saved. Notice that Peter tells us that these believers are scattered throughout these provinces. In the Greek, that word for scattered is the word diaspora. Diaspora. And that word means either scattered or dispersion. And sometimes it was used as a technical term for the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world. In fact, James uses this as a technical term in James 1.1 where he says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. James there is using it Speaking of the Jews, the dispersion of the Jews, so he's using it there in the technical sense. But Peter doesn't use that word here in the technical sense to speak of the Jews. He is talking about all Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, who are scattered throughout these provinces. And notice how Peter identifies these scattered Christians. He says that they are residing as aliens. They're residing as aliens. And what Peter is doing here is he's reminding these chosen believers of their earthly status. The Greek word for aliens is parapetamos, and it means to stay for a while in a strange or foreign place. To stay for a while in a strange or foreign place. It means sojourner or pilgrim or stranger. And the idea is of a person who is visiting a place for a while, but who is not a permanent resident. That's what an alien is. What Peter is talking about here is not that they are just visitors in these provinces, but that they are visitors to earth. They're visitors to earth. You see, Peter wants these suffering Christians to remember that they are not permanent residents on this earth, but their citizenship is where? In heaven. It's in heaven. As those who are chosen of God, earth is not their home. In fact, we saw this a few months ago in Philippians 3.20 where Paul tells the Philippian church, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter knew this as well. Peter knew this truth. He knew that all those who are chosen of God do not have a permanent residence here on earth. But our home is where? In heaven. That's where our home is. The author of Hebrews talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who were strangers and exiles on the earth. Even though they never entered the promised land, it was okay because they desired a better country, a heavenly one, as Hebrews 11.16 tells us. They desired heaven. And that's what Peter is reminding these persecuted Christians of. This world is not their home. They may be suffering for a while, but they are just aliens here. Just pilgrims who are passing through. Listen, church, this world is not our home. We don't belong to this place. We belong to heaven. To our king. And Peter's reminding them that what awaits them is a far better city, a heavenly city, where there will be no suffering or persecution or hardships or pain. It'll all be gone. They'll be set free from all of that and live for all of eternity with their Savior. Why? Because they are elect aliens. 
They are elect aliens. In fact, that's even how the Greek reads here. The Greek actually reads this way in verse 1. To those who are elect aliens. The Greek has the word chosen that we see in the NAS that's at the end of verse 1. The Greek actually has it before aliens. Instead of at the end of verse 1. They are chosen aliens. Chosen sojourners who are living on earth as temporary residents. But who await their permanent residence of heaven. And the same is true for us, church. The same is true for us. As the persecution of Christians is ramping up in this world, we must remember and be comforted by these words of Peter that as God's elect children Our earthly status is that we are just aliens who are living here for just a little while, but this is not our home. We're just strangers who are passing through. That's all we are. And isn't that so true? You talk with unbelievers. See the kinds of things that they engage in. They look at us, at least they should look at us, and think, you are strange. You're weird. Yep, that's right. In fact, that's what my Bible even says I am. (laughs) We're weird. Because according to their standards, we aren't living for the things that they're living for. We don't desire the things that they desire. We don't engage in the things that they engage in. We are aliens who are just here for a little while. Living in a foreign land because this is not our home. Thomas Ross and Taylor was dying at the age of 28 from an illness. And he wrote a hymn. And he wrote these lyrics to a hymn that was titled, I'm But a Stranger. And here's what he wrote. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear. Heaven is my home. Danger and sorrow stand round me on every hand. Heaven is is my fatherland. Heaven is my home. That was a man who knew his earthly status as one of God's elect, right? He was a stranger here because heaven was his home. And so that's point number one, the earthly status of God's elect. There are five more points to go but we'll pick up with those next Sunday. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you and we praise you and we give you glory and praise for this great, glorious doctrine of election that you have chosen us. And as your chosen people, we are strangers here. This is not our home. We thank you that before the foundation of the world, you chose us to be yours, to be your children. We thank you that Christ went to a cross and paid a price that none of us could pay. We thank you that he died in our place to save us from our sins. We thank you that as he went to that cross, he was thinking of us, your chosen ones, the elect of you. God, we don't deserve to be chosen by you. We don't deserve to be saved by you because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we thank you and we praise you 
that you have called us, that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be yours, and that you, God, by your sovereign grace, have saved us. Lord, help us to remember that this earth is not our home, but heaven is where you are. And Lord, while we are here on this earth, help us to be faithful to your calling, to what you have chosen us to do. Namely, to go out and to preach the gospel and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. May we do it out of a heart of love for you. And Lord, as we go through times of hardships and persecution, even in our nation, we thank you for this doctrine of election that gives us so much comfort. We thank you that even though we don't fully understand it, we believe it because it's in your word. And we thank you that you've revealed it to us to give us comfort and to give us hope. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.